Thank you, Pastor Delphus. Uh, what a refreshing reminder that God is sovereign and good all the time, and that he is even ordaining our struggles so that we can know him more fully and serve him more faithfully. It's a beautiful compliment to what we're going to look at tonight in Mark chapter 5. If you have a Bible, please open it. And we really are going to answer the question of what that looks like in our lives by studying the story of Jairus. As you turn there uh, or turn your phone on, open your Bible app, whatever you're doing, I want to uh, remind you that the substance of this talk serves as the structure of your small groups together. So as we spend time together in our small groups, we grow deeper in relationship, but also in the Word of God. And so this is kind of the spine for that. And uh, that's been something that's worked well with us considering the time. I'm going to run through this in kind of the the Cliff Notes version, and we're going to enjoy it together, and I'm pretty excited. Let me pray for us real quick. Lord, thank you that you're sovereign. What a gift it is. Lord, thank you that you are a God that has demonstrated that you're working all things according to the counsel of your will, that what the enemy intends for evil, you are working for good. Thank you that you're a God that has demonstrated that you are working things for good for your people and glory for your name. Thank you, Lord, that you are a loving Father who reveals yourself to us, your heart, to the person and work of Jesus. I ask now that your Holy Spirit would open the eyes of our heart. Help us to see the power of a reversal. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't just be inspired, but truly transformed in Jesus' name. Amen. So every month we've been looking at reset. What does it mean to reset our focus, to reset our lives, to, to reset our uh, worldview, to reset our places where we look for rest? And tonight we're going to look at a specific topic, reset uh, in reversal, the power of reversal. And we've experienced that here in South Texas recently. We had a complete reversal of what we're used to. Uh, If you're not from here, it is not normal that last week we got inches and inches of two snowstorms uh, and power went out and pipes went out. Uh, But I remember the first time I remembered, I realized the power of a reversal. I'm going to be vulnerable with you for a moment. Is that okay? I was a wrestler in eighth grade. And if you know anything about eighth grade wrestling, you had to wear those really tight suits. Did you ever know anybody that did this? I was one of those guys that when you saw them practice wrestling, you felt sorry for them. And you had to go out in eighth grade and actually roll around a mat with another person. And the whole goal is to pin that person or to get more points than them. And we were wrestling at a place called Northwest Georgia. Everybody said the high school, the middle school is Northwest Georgia. And I'll never forget that in my weight class, this guy walked out to wrestle me and he actually had a mustache. I was a 13-year-old underdeveloped young man. Somehow I was in this guy's weight class. I think he drove to the wrestling match and he had a mustache. My friends were like on the side of the mat laughing at me, making fun of me. They couldn't wait to watch me get pulverized. My strategy was simple. It was as soon as the referee started the match, I just started running circles. I just wanted to escape this guy and not get caught. And I made it all the way to three rounds. And in the third round, I was down two points to one point. You can win a wrestling match by pinning the other person or getting more points than them. I was on the bottom trying to figure out how I would live for the next minute until the match ended. And then I had an opening. I don't know what it was. Uh, It was just a providential opening. God's hand made an opening with a mustache man. I was able to slip out, get out from underneath him, and actually get on top of him. That's called a reversal. That gives you two points. That made me ahead three to two. What did the Mitchell team do at that point? I ran around and stalled until that match was over and was declared victory. And I realized, yeah, that's right. I realized at that point, 
the power, the power, the power of a reversal. It, yeah, but we're, we're going to talk about something that's far more powerful and reversal than, than just a, a prepubescent teenager that's fighting for his life against a mustache man-child. A great reversal. You know, you know, last week you had an opportunity. You had a choice. You could look at the struggle of the week, power outages, schedules totally off, and you could be frustrated and freezing uh, like I was at many times, inconvenienced, or you could actually enjoy the silence of the snow and the beauty. You could go for a walk. Maybe if you were creative, you could build a snowman. There was a choice that when a reversal came in our uh, climate that we could choose. Now, Jesus provides an opportunity for us to engage our lives, our hearts, our circumstances, even eternity, with the power of a reversal, a divine reversal. And what you're going to read about is a man named Jairus. And we're going to walk through this and walk through a few observations and some applications uh, that hopefully will be some structure and substance for your small groups together. Uh, and it, we're just going to be humbled, I think, by the power that Jesus has to reverse things. And I want to invite you as we go to this word, whatever you're bringing in here tonight, whatever personal struggle, whatever questions, whatever fear, whatever anxiety or unknown, Jesus wants to meet you intimately, and he wants to bring a gospel reversal that leads to true transformation. So we're going to begin at verse 21, and we're going to uh, uh, go to two parts of this section because we're focusing on Jairus' story. When Jesus had crossed again, that is the Sea of Galilee, in a boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. He was beside the sea. And then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, that is Jesus, he fell at Jesus' feet, and he implored him earnestly. Look at that in verse 23, please. He implored him earnestly earnestly saying to Jesus, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and that she may live. And Jesus went with him. Now here's a little interlude because as Jesus goes with him, uh, he's surrounded by a crowd and a woman that has been uh, struggling with bleeding for years and years actually comes up and touches Jesus. And when she touches Jesus, she actually finds healing. It's amazing that wherever Jesus comes intimately and touches, there is healing. But we're going to pick up the story again in verse 35. Look at the screen with me. While Jesus was speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said that your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they had said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and Jesus saw a commotion. People were weeping and wailing loudly, verse 39. And when Jesus entered, he says, why are you making this commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. Verse 40. And they laughed at Jesus. But he put them all outside. He took the child's father and mother and those who were with him. And they went in where the child was. And taking her by the hand, he said, Talithia kumi, which means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. 
and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is an amazing story. There's so much activity in Mark around the Sea of Galilee. And when Jesus enters this part, the ruler of the synagogue comes to him, Jairus. Now keep in mind, the ruler of the synagogue was a very religious man, but you know what he realized? There was no power in his religion. There was no power for him to find the healing and the wholeness and the hope that he longed for, that he needed, that he desperately desired. But he knew that Jesus had that power. It says that he implored Jesus earnestly. I love that phrase. He begged him. He cried out to him. He got in Jesus's way and said, please come touch my daughter. He just said, touch my daughter and she'll be made well. An unbelievable act of faith moving from religion to the person of Jesus Christ. Now, it's interesting because if you look at the context of the Gospel of Mark, you see that even in this chapter, it's not the first time that someone has implored Jesus earnestly. You can look up at, uh, in chapter 5 and look at verse 10 and you see the same language. Look at this. It says that the demons begged Jesus earnestly not to send them out of the country. Now, how do you like that? Begging earnestly to Jesus. Am I teaching this group to pray like demons? <laughs> no. But I am saying that demons may have more faith than I have. Jairus went to Jesus because he knew Jesus could be a healer. Jesus could touch his daughter and make her well. The demons knew. Not that Jesus could bring healing. They believe in God. They know who Jesus is, but they don't have a saving faith. They just know that he has all kinds of authority. He is the king of kings. But you see, people who have their relationship moving beyond religion not only know Jesus has the authority, but he has the compassion and the desire to touch us and make us whole. That is using our afflictions as a vehicle as a witness to him being God and to give him glory. It's what pastor just says, turns our trials into tools of evangelism. When we look and trust Jesus, you see the touch of Jesus is what Jerry's asked for. And the touch of Jesus is all through the gospel of Mark and it's transforming. It starts in chapter one. It's Peter's mother-in-law and he goes in. He doesn't have to touch Peter's mother-in-law, but he does touch her. And he, he, the fever leaves all through the gospels. Jesus touches lepers and he makes them clean. He touches fevers and they flee. He touches blind eyes and they see. He touches lame folks and they walk. And Jesus walked with Jairus. It is a powerful picture. And as he's walking, bad news becomes worse news. Did you notice that? That the people came from Jairus's house and they said, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter is no longer even with us. She's dead. What can the teacher do? <laughs> Have you been in a place where bad news has gotten worse? Have you been in a place where unanswered questions grow <laughs> and you really have no idea? 
Have you been in a place where your fear and your anxiety has increased and you weren't sure what you're going to do about it? That's where Jairus was. He heard news that his daughter, whom he had been advocating for, had died. And you know what he, Jesus says? Don't fear. Believe. You see, the demons, they can't believe that Jesus is their shepherd. They can't believe that Jesus is the love of the Father made known. The demons can't believe that Jesus is both Lord and Savior. But Jesus says, don't fear. Believe. And when Jesus enters into our brokenness, he does so in a way that demonstrates the divine sovereignty that we heard articulated from Psalm 119. We don't have to fear. You see, I walk with people all the time. And I see people in a prison of fear. They're afraid of what people think. They're afraid of not succeeding. They're afraid of not pleasing people. They're afraid of not proving their worth. They're afraid of not being significant. They're afraid of losing the things that they hold on to and they love. They're afraid of being left out. They're afraid of failure. They're afraid of themselves. And we're in a prison of fear. But it's self-imposed. Jesus, the power of the gospel, meets us in our fear, in the power of his word. It just says, don't fear, but believe. In faith, Jesus gives us the key that we can move from a place of being captured to a place of courage to allow the trials to really be part of our testimony. The people were grieving when Jesus walked up. They were weeping and they were wailing. And Jesus asked them. I mean, the guy kept going. It's amazing. He asked them, why are you weeping? The girl's not dead, but she's asleep. You see, the word of God, Jesus, speaks a truth that is greater than our circumstances. He speaks a hope that is greater than our comprehension. And this is what's amazing, that part of the crowd that was there, they didn't celebrate. You know what they did? They laughed. They laughed at Jesus. When Jesus made a declaration of the power that he has to reverse, they laughed. And what you see is you see different people that are in uh, different roles in this narrative. The parents, they go with Jesus into the house with James, John, and Peter, and they go into the room where their daughter is, and Jesus speaks in Aramaic. He touches her, and she rises. She moves from death to life, sleeping to wokeness, Right? Jesus reverses everything. But the people outside weeping and wailing, they're still weeping and wailing. Going through the ceremony, the people who are laughing are still laughing at Jesus. Who do you identify with in the story? Do you identify with Jairus and his wife who heard the key that Jesus gives that we only need to believe, that we need not fear, but Jesus wants to give a reversal? Or do you identify more with the people who hear the promise of Jesus in the perspective of the word made flesh and you laugh? How in the world can you give, him, give me freedom from this bondage? How in the world can you take the struggle of my past and make it a strength? How in the world uh, is your grace sufficient and your power made perfect in my weakness? That's crazy. I don't believe it. 
I'm just going to stay in this prison to be captured by fear. Immediately, the woman rises, the teenage, the 12-year-old rises, and she eats. They feed her. You can't feed a ghost. You feed a little girl who just came back to life. And immediately, it says that the amazement overcame the people. And Jesus charged them not to tell anybody. Just a few points of application that I don't have on the screen, and I know we need to end this. First, Jesus is a God who revives, and he reverses. The church has a real trouble believing this. No other faith can answer the question, really, what's the problem? And no other worldview or faith has the true solution. Jesus is the great healer. He is God who revives and reverses. But second, healing is a sign that God is with us. It's Emmanuel. All throughout Scripture, and particularly in the life of Jesus, the healing that he offers authenticates the power of his message, his word, and authenticates the messenger. Jesus is God. Now here's what I know. That Jesus doesn't necessarily bring a, a physical healing. I'm a man that stands in front of you, that I've had cancer in the past three years, and by God's grace, my body's clean of cancer, but my secondary disease that I've got, PSC, I'm a man that the doctor doesn't look at me and say, you're healed. As recent as three weeks ago, the doctor says, no, this trajectory is not good. This is not the direction you want to be going. But in God's faithfulness, he has afflicted me. It's exactly the passage that we read. It isn't necessarily that we have a total healing, but it is physically, it is that God uses those struggles in a journey that we might know his faithfulness more fully and that we might reflect him more faithfully. You know, healing all through scripture in Isaiah 35 says that it is a sign of the presence of God with us. And I will tell you that as I've been battling my health journeys physically, it hadn't been all the best news, but I have found a deeper dependency on the Lord that has been refreshing and restoring. And I welcome the discipline of God that he might make me more like himself. In Isaiah 53, the prophet demonstrates the power of God being able to reverse affliction. That Jesus, the surfing servant himself would, would carry chastisement, that he would bear iniquities, that he would be pierced for our transgressions and smitten and afflicted by God, that it's the Lord's will to crush him. And that is so that God's people can experience the revival and the reversal of his sovereignty and that he takes our suffering and our struggle and uses it as a vehicle for his glory. Now the third thing that I want you to see, and this is where we conclude, is that Jesus wants to revive and reverse the power of the curse. And through his grace, he wants to show you the blessing of his covenant faithfulness. The problem is, we believe our sin struggles. We believe our struggling circumstances, our unanswered question, our personal points of pain, we believe these more fully than we do the promises of God. I want to tell you that you need not fear, but you need only believe. There is no sin that you've committed that God cannot forgive you of. There's no struggle that you can't be free from. There's no failure that God can't use 
to transform, to display his faithfulness. There is no place of death in your life, in any relationship that you have, or any part of your family where God cannot bring resurrection. Jesus is a God that brings good news to the poor, that he brings freedom to the captive. He brings liberation. He brings sight to the blind. He brings joy and gladness to those who are despondent. He is a God of great reversals. And there's nothing that is more potent for us as his people that during this season, as we prepare our hearts for Easter, that we can reflect on this reality. Now, I said I had the Cliff Notes version. I just gave you 18 minutes of a talk. Forgive me for that. We're a few minutes over, but I still would like to end uh, with Callan's song. And I just want to challenge you to allow this song, the words of this song, to be a prayer for you. And we sang it yesterday in church, if you were with us, but to really go to the Lord and beg him for mercy. Mercy to be a healer. Mercy to give you hope. Uh, mercy to bring life in places of your heart where there is death. To bring strength out of your present struggles. And that he would reveal the light of the gospel and the love of the Father in your places of darkness and struggle. People, I need you to hear me. Do not fear, but believe. Jesus is a God of reversals. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you know us better than we know ourselves. Thank you for the power of the revelation of who you are. Uh, thank you, Lord, that uh, you are a God that moves towards our brokenness. You heard the plea of Jairus. You'll hear our pleas. You moved into the family in the house of Jairus, even in the most dire of circumstances, and you want to move into our families, into our houses, and you want to bring life where there is death. Lord, hear our cries for mercy, and we pray that you get glory in all we say, think, and do. In Jesus' name, amen.